So growing up, um, I always heard this saying, sticks and stones may break my bones. Okay, you've heard it before, but words will never hurt me. Right? It's probably one of the most untrue statements in the entire world. Um, if we're all being honest, it's so untrue. And first off, it was the absolute worst comeback that you could come up with when people insulted you as a kid. Like when you would get some type of insult and you said, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That, it was lame. Okay, it, was, it wasn't great. It wasn't a good comeback. And you often left feeling very hurt. Right? Uh, that was probably second to, I'm rubber and you're glue. Whatever you say to me bounces off of me and sticks on you, never stuck on them. It always stuck to me, right? Because words actually do hurt. They can discourage, they can tear down, they can destroy, and they can bring uh, an unhealthy amount of shame. A mentor of mine said it this way, our words create worlds, meaning our words can brighten or darken a room. Our words can build up or destroy a culture. Our words can create and shape who we are perceived to be, who we actually are, and how people interact with us. In every story, there's three main characters, the hero, the villain, and the victim. The villain oppresses the victim, and then the hero comes in and saves the day. This is the basis of any type of story. There's always a villain, there's always a victim, and there's always a hero that comes in and saves the day. And how we communicate with our words, with our tone, and with our body language determines which of these three characters we become in our story. When our words tear down and destroy, we are the villain. When we encourage and defend, we're the hero. And when we're on the receiving end of hurtful words, we become the victim. Our words are important. And our delivery of those words are just as important. My prayer is that uh, it was going to be a series, but last week that kind of got disrupted. So it's just a, a single standalone sermon. But uh, my prayer is that throughout this, you, you learn how to watch your words over the next few weeks so that you, we as a church can be a community that uses our words, not to destroy, not to tear down, not to condemn, not to shame, but to equip, encourage, and empower people to find their purpose so that they can live their purpose in Christ, to build each other up. And in John chapter eight, there's this familiar story that actually in some manuscripts, it's not included, but since John talks about how there are so many more things that he could have written down that Jesus did, this is very likely very true. But in John chapter eight, there's this familiar story. If you've been in church for a while, you've likely heard it preached because that's a really easy sermon to preach. In fact, I was bringing my illustration over here and, and Nan uh, mentioned this exact passage just while I was carrying the stones. But... Uh, John chapter 8 and verse 1, it's the story of the women being caught in adultery and the people are coming to her and they're ready to stone her and they ask Jesus, what should we do? All right, so John chapter 8, starting in verse 1, ending in verse 11. I'll read it for you. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives and at dawn he appeared in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. He sat down to teach him. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman who was caught in adultery. 
And they made her stand before the group. Lost my place for a second. Don't worry about it. I'm good. And they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, it's commanded for us to stone such women. Now, what do you say about that? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him, meaning Jesus. But Jesus bent down and started writing on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then again, he swooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She says, no one, sir. So Jesus declares, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now in this story, we can quickly establish how each of their words and their actions and their body language that you can imagine, how it puts them in these three different characters of every single story. Even though this is a historical account, every single story, every single person has and deals with these. The Pharisees are the villains because they took the place of the accuser. They intended to destroy not only the woman, but also to destroy Jesus. And they put him on trial. Their words and their actions demonstrated that their intentions were to hurt and destroy the reputations of the woman and of Jesus. They would have happily stoned the woman and killed her. And they would have happily after done that accused Jesus of not being a good Roman citizen, right? The victim is clearly the woman in the story because she's on the receiving end of the accusation. She was caught. She, she may have even been rightfully so. This was the rightful punishment according to the law of Moses, but she was on the receiving end of these accusations and it was her life that was on the line. And as in every single story throughout all of history, Jesus is the hero. He saves her life physically from the Pharisees and he keeps them from stoning her and spiritually by inviting her to repent of her sins. Jesus doesn't use his words to condemn or to tear down and destroy, but he demonstrates mercy and grace with his words so that she would be saved. Now today we're gonna look at how this hero, Jesus, interacts with both the victim and the villain, because if we're truly transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we'll respond in very similar ways. But let's look again at the, the victim, the woman. So John chapter eight, verse three, this is how we get introduced to this woman. And we really don't know anything outside of this story. We don't even know what her name is, but it says the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery and they made her stand before the group. All we really know is that these Pharisees somehow, right? You can use your imagination for how they might've found out, but they, they found out and, and caught her in the act of adultery. And these were the teachers of the law of Moses. These were the Pharisees. These were the temple workers. And it wasn't the fact that she was breaking the law of Moses that makes her the victim actually. It's the fact that she was being used by the Pharisees to destroy Jesus and to destroy Jesus's reputation because they used this particular instance to put Jesus at a crossroads. Either he was gonna be faithful to the law of Moses or he was gonna be faithful to the government that they had him under. 
right? So if, they, if Jesus, uh, just to give you a little bit of context of what the dilemma was or what it would have been if you're in Jesus's shoes, is that either you say, yeah, you're supposed to stone her because that's what the law of Moses says. But under Rome's government, they would call you a murderer. And so Jesus would go on trial for being a murderer if he would have said, yes, that's what the law of Moses says. But if he says, um, no, uh, we're, we're not supposed to stone her. You don't need to stone her. Then they would have said, well, you're defying the law of Moses. So you're not really a Jew. You're not really of us, and you're a false teacher, you're a false prophet, and by definition and in the law of Moses, we have the right to kill you because you're dangerous to God's word, right? So Jesus has this cross. Either action that he chooses is going to accuse him of something, and this is exactly what the Pharisees are doing, and this is what makes them so villainous in this situation, but this woman was brought before the people in the town, her friends and her family, complete strangers. And, and it was led by the preachers and the pastors of the day, all with stones in their hands, ready to throw them. For them to share in the sins that she committed to be threatened, to be stoned to death. Not only is she being humiliated, just like anyone would if they were standing before everyone and, and the preachers and the pastors of the day said, this is exactly what she did. We caught her doing it. Get ready to stone her. But she's also in fear of her life. And the best word that could come up with this type of fear is shame. She is feeling some deep shame. When Jesus says the famous line, whoever is without sin, throw the first stone. He started writing on the ground again, just as, just as Jesus wrote on the ground first. Now, what's interesting is that this is a very weird response, especially for a teacher, because he was a highly regarded teacher. The Pharisees tried to destroy him because in their eyes, he was a false teacher because he was claiming to be the Messiah. But outside of the Pharisees, everyone considered him a good teacher of the law, a good teacher of uh, the scriptures, but this weird interaction happens where they, they ask him, you know, teacher, what are we supposed to do? Jesus, what are we supposed to do? Because the law of Moses says this, so is this what we're supposed to do? And instead of saying anything, he just sits down and starts writing in the ground. Now, I remember as a kid, this is where the title Sticks and Stones came from. I would write things in, in the dirt with the stick. Right, and I would make like boundary lines for whatever war game I was playing, or I would, I would just draw or whatever it was. I, I would do, and I would do it with a stick. That's where sticks and stones came from. But this is what Jesus essentially does. He takes a stick. He doesn't really take a stick. It's not in scripture. He probably uses his finger, but he starts writing in the ground, and it's like he's completely ignoring him, or he's completely oblivious to what's happening. And it frustrates the Pharisees because they start pressing on again. They're like, Jesus, what are we supposed to do? Stop writing on the ground. Tell us what we're supposed to do. And Jesus stands up, says, whoever has never sinned, throw the first stone. And he gets back down and starts writing on the ground. Now, what's interesting is that some scholars will actually look at that and they'll be like, what was he writing on the ground? I don't think it's very helpful for us to do that. Now, now, you can definitely uh, talk about it and see it, but it's not in Scripture, so anything that you come up with may or may not be true, right? Some scholars will say that he was writing down uh, the sins of the people that were standing there, 
right? So if other people had been committed, uh, had committed adultery and they're about to stone this woman, he's writing down the names of the people and the, the uh, sins that they had committed. Now, I don't think that's true because Jesus could have just said it. Uh, I, I don't know what the difference would have been for him to write it down on the ground rather than just speaking it. Because if you've ever accused someone of something, what do they immediately do? They get defensive. So if Jesus is on the ground and he's writing Pharisee number one, we'll, we'll call him Mark if your name's Mark, I'm sorry. I'm not talking about you. Uh, Pharisee Mark has committed a lie, right? He told a lie. He's been deceiving in some of his ways, right? Pharisee marks him and be like, well, how dare you? How dare you put that on the ground? That's not true. So there wouldn't be any difference if Jesus were to have said that. I think that whatever he's writing on the ground gives them enough time to start thinking about what they've done in their life. And that's the point. It's not what he was writing on the ground. It was the time that he spent doing that. Right, but we'll talk about that in a minute. So he goes down, he starts writing on the ground. They accuse him. He says the famous line, whoever, uh, whoever has never sinned in their entire life, throw the first stone, swoops back down, starts writing on the ground. And it says, from the oldest to the youngest, they left. Now this is significant because it's showing the oldest had the most wisdom. And they'd probably committed more sins in their life because they were older. And so they knew that I've committed some sins, so I'm not worthy to actually throw a stone because if I look back in the law of Moses, I should be deserving this stoning too, except I got away with it. And so they, they start walking away. Jesus looks back to the woman after everyone had left and says, where's everyone at? You see how Jesus saved the victim. He, he took down all of the accusers with just one phrase and some silence. I can tell you one thing from experience, silence can be the loudest thing in your life. If you take some time being silent, it will be the loudest thing in your life. But this shame that she was feeling, you know where it actually comes from? It's born out of our sins. If you look in, at Adam and Eve at the very beginning, they didn't feel shame until they sinned and saw themselves naked uh, in front of each other. And they're like, oh no, I feel ashamed, right? So shame is born out of sins and it didn't exist until Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit. I read an article uh, a couple weeks ago that said this, when you violate God's laws, you feel guilt but that emotion is quickly, nearly simultaneously joined by shame. Guilt says you did something wrong. Shame says that's why you need to hide because you're no good and you don't deserve or you deserve to live in darkness. So come with me and I'll lead the way. You see the difference between guilt and shame? Guilt says, hey, you did this wrong. And shame says, come over here and hide and, and we'll keep it hidden. We'll make sure that no one finds out. No one has to find out. Harold uh, Seinville said, guilt has to do with the behavior while shame is a matter of identity. Guilt is tied to sinful things I've done. Shame is the continuous experience of utter remorse over who I am. You see how different levels 
happen with guilt and shame. Guilt is what you should experience when you sin against God because you've done something wrong against the God of the heavens and the earth, the God who created all things, the God of the universe. He did something wrong, so you should feel guilt. But shame always comes in and steps in and says, this is why you need to hide. And if, you're, if you've been in church long enough or if you've been walking with Christ enough, you know that guilt can come from God because it's called conviction of the Holy Spirit. When shame settles in, that's from the enemy. Now, it's not that you should never feel shame because there are moments where you should feel shame, but, most, but you shouldn't let you, yourself stay there shouldn't stay in this place of shame. Guilt and conviction will always lead you to repentance, but shame, if you stay there, will always lead you into darkness. And that's why the enemy is so quick to draw us into the feeling of shame. So this woman could have been thinking, I deserve this. If only I had said one last goodbye to my kids. If only I could have looked at my husband in the eye and told him how sorry I truly am. If only I could make things right. <laughs> if only I could just not fall so easily into temptation. Why, why couldn't I have been strong enough? Why couldn't I have been wise enough to escape? I deserve the pain. I deserve the punishment. I deserve it all. I'm just not good enough. And I'll never be strong enough to overcome this temptation. And I'm hopeless. And they should just go ahead and stone me because I, I deserve it. This woman filled with so much shame awaits for the first stone to be thrown. And after Jesus says this thing, the stones start dropping. I often wonder, as people are, are walking away and they're dropping the stones, what that would have sounded like that the stones thumping on the ground instead of hitting her flesh, where she's bracing herself for the impact and she hears something. You can imagine just hearing the sound, closing your eyes because you don't want to see what's happening. You don't want to see who's actually throwing it first, but just closing her eyes and bracing for the impact and hearing the thump on the ground and maybe even jerking, expecting to feel the pain, but she doesn't. Can you imagine the sound? See, anticipating the pain is what shame will do to you. But repentance will have you hear the sound of the stone and say, my hero saved me. My Jesus, he saved me because of his love for me. You anticipate the hurt. You anticipate the condemnation from others and from God. You anticipate the, uh, the stones to be thrown. And you hear the accusations, the yelling. You hear the stones fall to the ground instead of all of that. Each person left. Not a single stone was thrown. And I think it's because the Pharisees actually knew better. They knew that they had committed sins. You know, something about the Pharisees that we don't really give them credit for because we always see them as the villains and the, the what's it, the antagonist or however that literary term is. I'm sure I used the wrong one. But we always see, I did, I was right? Ah, awesome. <laughs> I learned something from high school. Uh, so the antagonist, the, the villain of the story, we always kind of, 
uh, expect, uh, we always keep our minds towards that, but something that the Pharisees did that they were a lot better at us at is they had a huge respect for God. Now, granted, they didn't have a huge respect for God's son and that's where their fall was, but their respect for God was beyond anything else in all of the land, right? The Pharisees were a very high positioned and they were a very uh, good position. That's why they, they often fell so much because they had so much pressure on them. We don't think about the pressure that they actually had because they actually had a certain amount of steps every single day that they were allowed to take, right? Uh, I've got my little Apple watch and it tells me how many steps I take per day. I never look at it because I, I can take as many steps or as few steps as I would like. But they had a certain amount of steps because if they took one more step outside of that, they would be dishonoring God. That's, that's how they were trained, right? And, and up to age 13, every single Jewish boy had the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, memorized word for word. The Pharisees, if you're a good student of the word, they were actually invited to start learning more and they would have more of the Bible memorized. And they would continue to memorize the Bible until their life ended. So all of the Old Testament that we know as the Old Testament, that was their entire Bible. They would have that memorized. Where if you said, uh, what, is, what is this book and this verse and this, uh, this chapter, this verse say? And they could instantly tell you. They were required to study the law and memorize the law so that they would not fall into sin. The Pharisees knew that they'd fallen into sin. So I, I think that they were the ones to first drop the stones, the older Pharisees. And as, as it continued on, as more people started leaving, more people started feeling conviction and they continued to leave. And Jesus saves the victim. Now, oftentimes we... We think of ourselves as the victim. It's very easy for us, especially in our day, to play the victim card. To say, well, you know, people are just oppressing me. People, people are, are talking bad about me. Or, or you know, I, I didn't put myself in that situation. At, you know, it just came upon me. I couldn't have possibly done that to myself. It, it, it's just, I'm the victim in all of this. But the reality that we don't like to really talk about a lot is that we are the ones holding the stones. That we're ready to throw them whenever they're ready to be thrown. We're, we're the villain. We're the followers of the villain. We're ready to tear down others because they're not as spiritual as us. They still haven't accepted Christ and they've been going to church for years, right? They need to be having some stones thrown at them to get them uh, ready for ministry, to get them ready and, and to open their eyes to what's really happening in the world. We're so ready to take up these stones and throw them away that actually what we do is behind all of our hymnals that we sing and the Bibles that we read on Sunday mornings are a bunch of stones ready to be thrown. And we take them and, and we hold them and we're so ready to throw these stones at whoever we think deserves them. Behind every Christian, there is a stone ready to be thrown because we are not perfect. We are fallen people, but we're ready to throw them. We may never say it out loud, but we think it. I'm more spiritual than they are. I lift my hands in worship.
I'm more spiritual than that person is because I actually take notes during the sermon. Man, I'm more spiritual than that person because did you see what they did last week? I would never do that. Behind every follower of Christ, there are stones that we're ready to throw. And the things about this is that this would be considered a very small stone in their day and age. In fact, the most righteous people, the Pharisees, would pick up the biggest stones because they felt that they were worthy to throw the stones, that they were worthy to set people straight, to let people see an example of what happens if you don't follow God. We're ready to throw some stones. Jesus could have very easily shown them that he was the boss, that he was the guy, that he was the Messiah. He could have easily thrown some truth bombs their way and embarrassed them in front of everyone and all of their peers and everyone that they followed because of their lack of understanding of the law of Moses, that, that he came to actually fulfill the law of Moses, to, to, to fulfill it in a way that we never could. And some scholars believe that the Pharisees actually took part in setting up this adulterous claim. Right Now, I don't know if this is true because it doesn't show up in Scripture, but some scholars will say that the Pharisees and even a Pharisee himself seduced the woman and brought her into his home so that he would be, he would be the one right there to say, look, you're committing adultery. We're going to bring you before all the people because we just caught you. Right? We always see and hear about the woman that was committing adultery, but we never hear about the man that was behind it. And it's probably because that Pharisee felt the shame and said, I'm gonna hide this, but we need to do this so that we can destroy this false teacher. So I'm gonna hide behind my own shame. I'm gonna hide behind my own guilt that I did something wrong against the Lord, but it was purpose. And it was likely a Pharisee that said, hey, I'm gonna seduce this woman and I need some more witnesses so that we can convict her and we can trap Jesus. And once we trap Jesus, then he's gonna either be killed by the Roman government or we're gonna be able to stone him ourselves for being a false teacher. Behind every follower of Christ, there's a stone ready to be thrown. But instead of Jesus telling the Pharisee, you're the one that set it up, why were you in the same room waiting? Before, uh, instead of doing any of those accusations, he says, if you've never sinned, throw the first stone and I'll wait. He invited self-reflection. He invited self-assessment. And one by one, they dropped their stones and left because they all knew that they deserved to be stoned according to the law of Moses. They deserved to die according to the law of Moses for their sins as big or small as they might have thought. And church, aren't you glad that Jesus often refrains from exposing your darkness to the world and and instead invites you to self-reflect instead? Jesus makes us whole not you. Jesus saves us. We don't save ourselves. Jesus is the hero of the story. We are not the hero of the story. Without Jesus, there's no hope. And that's one of the countless reasons why we as Christians need to step up and start sharing the gospel with the lost because there are so many people without hope. And they need this hope in their life. And they don't have hope 
and they, but they can find the same hope that we have, but we are the vessels in which God has chosen to share it to the world. We're the messengers. But if we're holding on to these stones, we'll never share the gospel because they don't deserve the gospel. They, they don't deserve to come to my church. I don't really want them to come to my church. They can go to any other church if they want to, but they don't have to come here because we're ready to throw some stones. He's calling you not to condemn the world, but to help take part in the mission to save the world. That's why it's called mission, because we're, we're working together. We're both part of the mission. God could have done it all by himself. Jesus could have all done it by himself, but Jesus invited 12. And so God also invites all of the people who accept God or accept Christ as their Lord and Savior. He doesn't call you to accuse others of sins. He calls you to reveal their sin in such a way or to invite them to self-reflect on their sin so that they might be saved. Not by you, but by Christ. There are so many people in our world filled with shame and hopelessness, and we have the answer for it. And so I ask you, if you've never shared the gospel with anyone, why haven't you done it? If you have this this hope, and you're living in this hope, why would you not go and share? Why would you not share it with anyone? Why would you not tell anyone? Some of us, we've been, we've been called by God to reach them. All of us, we've been called by God to reach them with hope and introduce them to the one who's turned shame into glory. And some of you might be feeling hopeless. Some of you may be without hope and you are the victim of the story that you're the ones, and you've got religious people, you've got non-religious people ready to throw some stones at you for what you've done. But Jesus invites you to self-reflect and he invites you towards repentance so that you might be saved. That if you follow God, if you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved as scripture says and as Paul will say in one of his letters. And if that's you, if you've been filled with shame for who you are, don't let shame take a hold of you because that shame will often turn into a stone for you to throw. Don't let shame take root, but instead accept the free gift of salvation and mercy and grace that God offers us. Make Jesus the Lord of your life. And once you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Christ from the dead, then you're a child of the living God. And that should give us hope. It should bring us excitement that you're valued and loved greatly. But I want us to take a moment and actually practice what Jesus decided to do with the Pharisees. Some of you in here, you're villains. Uh, I'm sorry to tell you, most of us in here are villains. We're ready to condemn and, and to tear down other people. Whether we'd like to admit it or not, we're all ready. And then some of you, and probably most of us at the same time, we're also victims. Because some of you, you're, you're your own villain. You're your own worst enemy because you're the one that's, that's bringing yourself deeper into shame and you don't have to. Jesus invites you to hear. So if everyone around the room would close their eyes and bow their heads. And if you're watching online, do the same thing. If you're listening in your car, please keep your eyes on the road. Just take a moment and reflect. Imagine Jesus riding on the ground your sins that you've committed. 
feel the weight of this moment and know that your, your destiny is to have stones thrown at you. It's gonna be awkward in the silence, but the silence is loud. Reflect on the sins that you've committed in your life. Can you feel it? The weight of your sins, how rebellious you are against the God of the universe. And instead of throwing stones, Your greatest shame turns into his greatest glory. For you are his child. Lord, as we reflect in this moment, the stones that we carry, the stones that we're afraid are about to hit us. Lord, let this sound ring through our ears, the sound of your forgiveness, the sound of your mercy, the sound of your love, the sound of your grace. Lord, we thank you for you are so good and you love us so much. In this moment, if you're still picturing those sins that you've committed in your life, if you, if you can't think of one, then I strongly urge you to, to ask God in this moment that, you would, that he would reveal some darkness within you, that he would reveal some malicious ways within you. But those sins that you're picturing, those moments in your life where you're like, man, this is my greatest regret. I want you to know right now that God forgives you for it, that God loves you in spite of it because he doesn't see you as part of that sin. He sees you as someone who is, who's able to be redeemed, able to be saved. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross and rise again so that you could be set free from that shame, so that you could be set free from that guilt.